Hey men, my name is Mace, and I serve as the Men's Discipleship Coordinator here at FaithBridge. FaithBridge Men exists to create a movement among men in our church and our community where men can experience the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, develop authentic community with other men, and live a life of eternal significance. Our theme for the entire spring season is fight the good fight. Life is tough. It's a battle. Temptation and trial are around every corner. But on our deathbed, we want to be able to look our loved ones in the eye and say, like the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. We want to be men who fight the good fight, men who believe the true gospel and are being transformed by the gospel. This episode comes from session five of our men's study on the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. In this section of the letter, the Apostle Paul says that believers in the local church should care for one another. They should treat each other like family including taking care of widows and honoring their spiritual leaders. Men who fight the good fight, fight to care for one another. Well, it was one of the scariest times of my life. My 10-day-old baby girl, Haven, was admitted into the hospital with bacterial meningitis. And she would go on to spend 18 days in the hospital, six of those days um, in the ICU. And um, after having already lost one daughter, the thought of losing another was just horrifying to me and my wife. By the grace of God, she, she came through and she is alive and well. And she is our, our three-year-old walking, talking miracle in the most literal sense. But what I share that story with you tonight to highlight is how our church family, during the time that my daughter was in the hospital and in the months after with all the therapy, the way our church family rallied around us, that the men and women and children of Faith Bridge fought with us in prayer, that even when we didn't even have the mental, emotional, physical energy to, to eke out words to God ourselves, that we knew that there was an army of prayer warriors with us in the fight. And I think about the, the men and women who came and sat with us, whether that was in the hospital room with us, or many of them would just come and sit in, in the waiting room and just so that we would know that they were there with us. I think about the, the men and women, many of whom we didn't even know that helped us cover the medical bills that we weren't sure how we were gonna be able to pay. And I think about the, the people of Faith Bridge, the people of our church family who, who came to our house and cleaned and, and did our laundry. One of the stories I will never forget is one of the women of Faith Bridge uh, coming to our front door to deliver a load of laundry she had done. And I opened the door and said, hello and, and thank you. And I grabbed the laundry basket from her to look down and see my underwear. That's the love of Christ right there. And, and why did they do all that? Well, because as fellow followers of Jesus, as fellow members of Christ's body, we are family. That's the way it should be. But just because that's the way it should be doesn't mean that that's the way it always is. That um, sociologists are telling us 
that we are in a pandemic, and no, I'm not talking about the COVID pandemic, that we are in a loneliness pandemic. According to the Health Resources Services Administration, 40% of Americans report that they sometimes or always feel their social relationships are not meaningful. For context, that's at least two men at each table tonight. More than that, one in five say that they feel lonely or socially isolated. So that's at least one man at each table tonight. So as men who want to be men who fight the good fights, how do we fight the loneliness pandemic? And while our text for tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 5, is not uh, primarily addressing the issue of loneliness, I think we will find several helpful principles in this text. So uh, Paul is writing to Timothy as his mentor, detailing how to strengthen the church at Ephesus. And as we look at 1 Timothy 5, Paul is going to exhort Timothy to fight to care for one another. So let's jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and we'll read verses one and two. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So in short, Paul is exhorting Timothy to to treat his fellow believers in the church at Ephesus like family. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that he said the church is the household, is the family of God, that we are a a family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so why, why is Paul saying this? And I think it's because... Paul knows that as Timothy is going to combat these false teachers, Timothy's going to have to speak some hard truth. He's going to have to have some hard conversations. But he's reminding him that as he does, that to speak to them like family. So Timothy should treat the older men like fathers. He should show them honor. Timothy should treat the younger men like brothers. He should show them brotherly love and support. Timothy should treat the older women like mothers. He should show them respectful affection. And Timothy should treat younger women like sisters. And Paul specifies with purity. And certainly that would include sexual purity. And so men, um, all women fit in one of three categories. That woman is either your wife, and she's the only one with whom you should experience sexual intimacy with, and unless she's that one woman, every other woman in the world fits into one of two categories. She is either your sister in Christ, and you're meant to respect her, and to protect her from other men who might wish to prey upon her, So she's either your sister in Christ or she's lost. And perhaps the most damaging thing you could do with a lost woman is to objectify her and use her. How could that possibly point a lost woman to Christ? A Christ, a man who willingly sacrificed himself, allowed himself to be brutally beaten, mocked, and murdered for her sake. 
And so my question for us all men is, is this the attitude that we have towards our fellow believers? Do we see the older men in the church as our fathers? Do we see the younger men in the church as our brothers? Do we see the older women in our church as mothers? And do we see the younger women as sisters? And do we treat them with purity? But what about those in the church who have no physical family left? Well, that's where Paul turns to next. So let's read, uh, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasures is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, and having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. And so what's Paul's point? Paul is exhorting Timothy, as we fight to care for one another, we need to fight for those who have no family. And so as he talks about the widows in the church, he, he essentially is teaching Timothy how to do some triage, that a, a widow would only qualify for assistance and support in the church if she met three qualifications. First, she had to be at least 60 years old. And I think the idea here is uh, at over 60 years old, she was on the one hand unlikely to be remarried, and then on the other hand also unlikely to be able to provide for herself. In addition to be, being over 60 years old, she, she must not have any physical family members willing or able to care for her. And then third, she must be godly. We see a list of these godly characteristics, not that unlike the qualifications of elders and deacons we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so if an older woman, or excuse me, if an older woman has physical family members left that can provide for her, 
They should. And if they refuse to, they're worse than an unbeliever. And a younger widow should be remarried. That even though marriage is between one man and one woman for life, that means that when one life ends, the covenant has been fulfilled. So Paul will say in places like Romans 7, if a spouse dies, the the living spouse is free to be remarried and still be faithful to their covenant vows. And so you might be thinking, okay, uh, Paul, I thank you for being clear and practical because that's not always true of the things you write, but why this topic of all things? Why, Why is this here? And I think we have to remember the context of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy because these false teachers are invading the church and plaguing them with false teaching. And we know at least two things about these false teachers from what we've read so far in the letter. That number one, these false teachers are greedy. That these false teachers teach and preach your best life now. And so that would likely mean that um, don't support your aging widowed mother. You need to keep all that for yourself. You need to live your best life now. And then the second thing that we know about these false teachers that would relate to what Paul is saying to hear about widows is in 1 Timothy 4.3, it says these false teachers were forbidding marriage. And so he's saying that uh, the, the physical descendants of these widows, if they are able to, should care for them. And the younger widows are free to re- remarried. They have fulfilled their vows to their husband. Death has done them part. Now they are free to remarry and they should do so gladly. But if uh, an older godly widow has no family to take care of them, the church Her spiritual family should move in and should provide for her and support her. One of my favorite examples of this comes from right here in this church. Um, A woman by the name of Jerry, who by any measure is a godly woman. In fact, she's the woman who spent a couple of years discipling my wife. And my wife regularly refers to her time with Jerry and lessons learned during that time. Well, Jerry lost her husband a couple of years ago. And through a series of God-ordained events, ran into another family in her neighborhood while walking her dog. And turns out that her neighbors are faith bridgers, Matt and Jenny Sneller. And over the course of time, this relationship formed where essentially Jerry has become an adopted member of the Sneller family. And it's a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to do as the church, that we are family. And that means that we take care of those who don't have any physical family to take care of them. One of the things about uh, the American church is that there's a lot of emphasis on finding other people in the church that are just like us, being in small groups with other parents of young children, other empty nesters, other golfers for Christ, whatever the case may be. And I think that there's a time and a place for that, but... If that's the only community you have in the church, the only community you have in the church was with other people just like you, you're missing out on the glorious picture of of how the gospel reconciles us first and foremost to God, but also reconciles us one to another. That, That people who have nothing in common by worldly standards can be united in Christ 
as family, as brothers and sisters. And so that's why one of the reasons here at FaithBridge, uh, we value multi-generational small groups where men and women, young and old, married and single can come together and build community with one another and get to know one another and support one another. And as you do that through the natural course of doing life together, you're gonna know the needs of the people in your community people that may not have any physical family members to take care of them, and we can move in and we can support them. And so we should fight to treat believers like family, especially for those who have no physical family. And then there's another subset of the spiritual family members that Paul wants to emphasize, the leaders of the spiritual family. Let's read, uh, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And so you will recall from uh, one of our lessons a couple of weeks ago that when he's talking about the elders, he's talking about the leaders of the church, that the, the office of elder is synonymous with the office of overseer or pastor. And he's saying these people who labor in leadership in the church, especially in preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. What does he mean there? Well, I think he means the first honor is what he said at the beginning of the chapter, that older men should be treated with honor like fathers. And then the double honor would be that respect or that honor, but it also means providing for their physical and material needs. And so he quotes an, an Old Testament scripture. He says, uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, Paul is teaching us that when we read, uh, which many of you might be if you're in a Bible in a year plan, you're reading verses like this every day right now. And, and you're like, what is the point that I, I should return my neighbor's donkey? I, my neighbor doesn't have a donkey. What, how do I obey that? Well, Paul is teaching us um, that those, those laws that we see in the Old Testament are, are case studies. And we're meant to, to draw, not only obey them literally where we can, but to draw principles from them. And so the, the principle that Paul is drawing from this verse about uh, not muzzling the ox is that we need to provide for those who labor for us. We need to provide for those who labor for us. And uh, that includes uh, providing for our pastors and elders who labor for us, who shepherd our souls. And then another way that he talks about of showing respect uh, to our elders is to not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And again, Paul here is appealing to Old Testament principle that in the Old Testament that a case uh, should only be admitted against someone if there are two or three uh, witnesses. 
But at the same time, if it is a credible accusation and that elder refuses to repent, he should be rebuked and he should be removed from leadership. And so this reinforces what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the elders, the leaders of the church should be men of character. And if they prove themselves not to be, they should be removed from leadership. And Paul, as he often does, is not only going to the Old Testament and building upon the Old Testament, but he's also building upon the teachings of Jesus in places like Matthew 18, that when we see a brother in sin, we should go to him, we should talk to him and love point out where their life is not in step with the gospel, that fighting the good fight is believing the true gospel, but it's also being transformed by the gospel. And where we see our brothers in Christ not living in accordance with the gospel, we we should confront them in love and point that out for them. And if they refuse to, despite our our best attempts, um, we should ultimately, um, sadly, contritely, say, I'm not sure that you have the true Jesus. You, you say you believe one thing, but you are, are living another, especially if they're uh, in the office of elder. So one of the ways that we live this principle out here at FaithBridge is one of our core values that we call the gossip-free zone. And in short, the gospel-free, or not gospel-free zone, we want a gospel-full zone. Let me be clear about that. Uh, Ken, if you're listening to this, I am a fan of the gospel. Gossip-free zone, the gossip-free zone. And the gossip-free zone essentially says that we need to be people who talk to people rather than about them. So if we see an elder in sin, um, if we have something that is, is causing us strife, we need to talk to them rather than about them. And so we should fight to honor our elders. That means to provide for them and to not admit false charges. Now, uh, in case you think that I'm just another greedy church staff member trying to guilt you into to giving more money so I can pad my own pocket, um, what about something that costs no money? What about encouragement? Depending on the source that you, you read, it takes anywhere between four and seven positive comments to override a negative comment. And you know this, think about an annual review at work. Your, your boss can go on and on about the things you do well, but they say that one, that one thing, right? That, that one growth opportunity. And what sticks with you? The negative, right? Do you have any idea the amount of negativity and discouragement that pastors have faced in the last two years? Uh, According to some recent Barna research, in January 2021, 29% of pastors had seriously considered leaving the ministry. That's almost one in three. In October of 2021, that number rose to 38%. In 2016, 87% of pastors rated their mental well-being as good or excellent. But in October 2021, it was down to 60%. So one of the questions that I want you to reflect on tonight and discuss around your table is, what do you appreciate about the pastors at FaithBridge? Especially our, our senior pastor, Pastor Ken. And what are ways that you can communicate and demonstrate your appreciation to them? 
What sort of church would we be if the men of this church flooded our pastor's inboxes, their text messages, their voicemails with words of encouragement? What if we spoke to them in writing and face-to-face with them about the specific things that we appreciate about them and their ministry and the difference that their ministry has made in our lives? I know I'm convicted. My, my wiring is, uh, leads me to just naturally see what is not right or can be improved about a situation. And again, there's a time and a place for that. And one of the things that I appreciate most about Faith Bridge is that we have a, a high feedback and debrief culture. We debrief everything that we do. But what if we try to catch our pastors when they're getting things right and we told them about it? We appreciated them, we encouraged them. So I would encourage you to think on these things, talk about these things um, with your table, but don't leave it there because again, if you're like me, you'll have a great conversation. Oh, I, I need to thank Ken for blank. Or I need to thank Wayne for this. And through no uh, ill intent, you'll simply forget. So before you leave tonight, not only reflect on these things and talk about these things, but set a reminder on your phone to send an email or a text message or to make a point to, to find Ken on Sunday or another pastor that you appreciate here at FaithBridge. Now, to be clear, criticism isn't just a modern day pastor's problem. It appears that Timothy was facing criticism from these false teachers. Look at 1 Timothy 5.23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So uh, I come straight here on Tuesday nights from the ball field uh, where my my son has baseball and I was uh, walking to the car with my wife and my children uh, getting ready to come here and my wife asked me what what I was teaching about tonight. I said, drinking wine. (laughs) And my son looked at me, what? I said, it's in the Bible, 1 Timothy 5.23. It seems kind of random, right? So what I think is going on here, we talked about last week that one of the faults of the false teachers, they were practicing ungodly abstinence, that they were taking what God calls good and calling it evil. And I think that's what is presumably going on here, that these false teachers um, were, were coming at Timothy with, these, uh, legal, with this legalism and with this ungodly abstinence teaching to where Timothy, to try to be above reproach, just said, I'm not going to drink any wine at all, even though it would have been beneficial for whatever stomach ailment he was, was going through. And so I think the principle that we can take from here is like we talked about last week is that God's gifts are good if they are received with gratitude and if they are used in accordance with the boundaries we find in scripture. And so in this case, Timothy should enjoy and avail himself to the common grace of wine for medicinal purposes. Uh, For me, this looks like taking anti-anxiety medication that uh, a couple years back, uh, I noticed this uh, knot in my chest that wouldn't go away. And if you remember uh, from a few years ago, this was months after Ken had had his scare, almost dying of a heart attack. And I was like, I'm not messing with this. I am going to the doctor. Thank God my, my heart checked out fine. And my, my doctor said, I, I think you're just stressed. I think this is anxiety. Um, and so I did my best 
um, to kind of audit my spiritual practices and my habits, um, my exercise regimen, my diet, reading the Bible, prayer, community, all these things, and check, 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 check. Uh, I was doing all the things that us good Christians are supposed to do and that we often hear when we struggle with things like anxiety or depression. You just need to be, read your Bible more. You need to pray more. Are you in community? Are you sleeping enough? Those are good questions to ask. Uh, but sometimes the answer is yes, and that person still cannot climb out of that hole. And so um, I got put on a, a, a safe uh, low dose of anti-anxiety medication. And the way I have experienced it and the way uh, that I've talked to other people who take mental health medication have corroborated that this is their experience as well. So for me, what my medication does is take the edge off of my anxiety just enough so that then all of those spiritual practices can have their intended effect. That it makes my prayer and my Bible reading and my, my sleeping and my eating effective at, at calming my anxiety. And so the principle is this, that if we are gonna be men who fight the good fight, we need to fight against Pharisaism. That we must fight against making man-made extra biblical rules and applying them to anybody and everybody. So we must allow people to enjoy good gifts with gratitude and within scripturally informed wise boundaries. Now that, that, that may mean um, for you, there is no such thing as one drink. And so that may mean that wisdom for you is completely abstaining from alcohol, but we need to be aware of taking what is wise choices for us and applying extra biblical rules to other men. And so another question I want you to wrestle with, to reflect on and to discuss with the men at your table is, where are you prone to Pharisaism? Where are you prone to add rules of man to the word of God? Where are you prone to judge others for their choices, even when it does not violate the teachings of scriptures? But you wanna know something interesting about Pharisaism? From the outside, it can look like godliness. But remember, Paul called that sort of spirituality, he called it bodily discipline, as opposed to godly with, uh, discipline. Pharisaism is an, an outside only spirituality where true spirituality, truly fighting the good fight is being transformed by the gospel from the inside out. So how do you tell the difference? Well, look at what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy to fight for patience and discernment. I think this is going back to verse 22 where he's saying do not lay hands on someone too hastily. In other words, don't put someone in spiritual leadership too early until you truly know their character. Just because they look squeaky clean on the outside at first does not guarantee that they are men of godly character. You gotta wait. You have to practice patience. You have to practice discernment. 
And while we will never be at 100% of this, if we do that, if we, we fight for patience and discernment when it comes to giving people spiritual influence and putting them in places of spiritual leadership, that will help us avoid having to deal with the situation of verses 19 and 20 where we have to, to admit accusations against an elder and ultimately rebuke them and remove them. And so before a man uh, should be a leader or an influencer in the church, including in our lives, they must prove themselves to be men of character. So who do you allow to be influential in your life? Are they men of character? Are they godly men? Are they men who live an exemplary life? Are they men who fight the good fights? If you didn't have those sorts of men in your life before the last few weeks, hopefully you have some men like that as you have been part of this study. So as we are in the home stretch of this study, what will you do beyond this study to stay connected to those men in order to mutually encourage and edify one another? We need one another. We're family. So we need to fight to treat other believers like family. Every fellow believer should be like a father or a mother or a brother or a sister. And we need to fight for those who have no family. We need to rally around those in the church like widows to encourage and support them and show them that even though they have lost their physical family, their spiritual family is right there with them. We need to, to fight to honor our elders. We should be flooding our pastor's email inboxes and voicemails and text message and conversations with words of encouragement. We need to fight against Phariseeism because you cannot love your brother and think you are better than him at the same time. And we need to fight for patience and discernment particularly as it relates to giving men influence in our lives. So find men of character, men who are fighting the good fight and regularly meet together to learn from one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. Because when we fight to care for one another, we're fighting the loneliness pandemic. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed to the Father. And he prayed for everyone who would believe in him, those who would be one, that they would be one with him as they, or excuse me, as that we would be one with one another even as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Because as the church stands united as a family, we are a witness to the gospel in the world, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another. So let's stand together in the fight as a band of brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, yes, but having been forgiven, Lord, to adopt us into your family, that you are our father, 
that Jesus is our brother and beyond that, everyone else across the world and throughout history that calls you father is our brother and our sister in Christ. Help us to see the men and women around us in the church through these spiritual eyes. Help us see them as family. Help us love them and honor them as family members. Help us have particular eyes to see those who are in our congregations. They're sitting in the crowd on Sunday mornings, but they're lonely. Maybe they have no physical family left to take care of them, Lord. Help us swoop in, Lord, and surround them to be a family to them. And help us honor those among our family who have given their lives to lead us, to shepherd us, to teach us, Lord. Help us honor them. Help us catch them in the act of doing right, Lord. Help us see what they get right. Help us appreciate the work that they do for us, Lord. And give us the words and the opportunity to speak those things to them, Lord. To encourage them, to build them up as they build us up in the body of Christ. Give us eyes to see the plank in our own eye, Lord. That yes, there is a time to, to, to point out the sin that we see in a brother's life, not to condemn them, but to, to call them to something better, Lord. But never, may we never think that just because you have something better for them, that we are better than them. Help us fight against Pharisaism. Help us have love and compassion and grace towards one another. And as Jesus prayed in the garden before he went to the cross, we pray that we may be one, just as you and the Son and the Spirit are one. And as we stand united as a family, we would proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to the world. That we would blow people's minds, that people from all walks of life, men and women, young and old, married and single and divorced, would all come together and be a family, Lord. And that as the, the, the onlooking world sees us standing united, Lord, they would see you and they would come to know you and place their trust in you and likewise become a part of your family. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Faith Bridge Men podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe so you can catch future episodes and help us spread the good news by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing this episode with another man who would be helped by the content. And we will catch you next time on the Faith Bridge Men podcast. Until then, keep fighting the good fight.